time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. It's Tracy Silverman, your host of the For the Greater Groove podcast, The Future of Strings. And this is where we talk about, guess what? The future of strings. We're talking about progressive string playing here, not what strings have done for the last 400 years, which is wonderful. Don't get me wrong. Love it. Big fan. <laughs> but... It is 2022, they tell me, and maybe it's time for some new string playing to get going, and that's what we're talking about. And I got on the show today my old buddy from Turtle Island, Mr. Danny Seidenberg, is here. So we're going to talk about the future, but we're also probably going to take a couple little strolls down memory lane, <laughs> if we dare, <laughs> or maybe not. We'll see. <laughs> you didn't, I don't know if you noticed the shirt that I'm wearing. Oh, oh, God. They're, those still exist? Wow. Do, you, do you remember this? Yeah, the Turtle yeah, Island String Quartet t-shirt designed by, by my father-in-law, by the way. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. That goes my way back. You did and, some work on that record, too. That, uh, went that uh, holiday record that we did. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep, yep. And uh, for those of you who may not know all the brilliant, wonderful things that Danny's been doing since Turtle Island or during Turtle Island, um, well, give you, I'll give you a little rundown on, on, on this guy because he's an interesting character. Um, he started out in New York, busy freelancer, all over the New York freelance scene. In fact, that's how our paths crossed true. sort of in the, without even... I went to see you at Tracks in about 1998, oh something. Yeah, it would have been about late 80s. Mm -hmm. Holy cow, really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And you had a great admirer there, admirer who was always touting you, was Juliet Hafner. Ah, Ju and, and Juliet is how... Juliet changed my the course of history and the course of my career. I'll tell the story right now, and then I'll get back to your I want to all hear your this story. <laughs> well, you know how we met. How we yeah. met. Well, okay, we'll get into that first in a second. First, I'm just gonna give you, you know, hey, he's a Grammy Award winner. You got to say that, right? Mm -hmm. Grammy Award winner with Turtle Island String Quartet. Um, a busy educator, been a teacher for all your life, probably. But it's been no, no, that's not true. Teaching is nope. a very new, relatively new thing for me. Oh, okay, which is why I'm really into it. I oh, never okay. got created by it. I never had time to teach before, but in my dotage here, in this room that I never leave, yeah, <laughs> um, this is my playground. Ground, and, um, and since we moved to Chicago, I've become extremely serious about it. 
That's and, great, uh, man. And I was going to say also, you know, that I, I've perused all of the ones you've done so far. And, and of course, I know about, you know, the unusual nature of your career. And we all admire what you've done so much. But and and that I have to say I, I'm probably the squarest one you've done so far <laughs> because I'm I'm as much embedded in in the traditional yeah. world as and on the viola and the violin that's another thing yep I become much more serious huh. about so I you know um, in the last I don't know ten years I guess uh, and you know playing major concertos and yeah. And doing a lot of chamber music, and I never really, I never really let that go. In fact, I I have a funny story about that. Yeah. Back in Turtle Island days, um, I used to try to do as much classical work and Baroque, which is another thing that's always been part of my what I've loved. Yeah. And, uh, one time I was playing uh, with a, one of the Baroque ensembles in um, in Berkeley, um, and. Uh, Mark Summer, our cellist, yes. called my wife, Daryl, who you need to also interview, I hope, at some point. Yeah. And, and he, uh, he needed to know something from me, and she reports this phone call. She said, oh, he's out doing a, a Messiah with this, um, with this the great um, Philharmonia Baroque. I think that's who it was. The, mm -hmm. One of the top Baroque orchestras. It would, and I loved doing that, mm. especially as a contrast to what I did all the time with that quartet, right. which, believe it or not, as exciting as it was, it could also get very old at times. Yeah. And he, he said, ooh, how can he stand that? <laughs> because he was not square, you know. And she said, I think he really loves doing it. <laughs> and it was hard to get him to understand that. It seemed so, so I don't know. I. That's me. I mean, it's always well. On the me. other hand, this is so many different things. Yeah, and it's just always been that way. But a, but a legitimate comment from from Mark only because you are somebody who, having done way too many uh, nutcrackers, oh, I well, believe there's that. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> an excess of nutcracker in your life. But so. we also did yeah. an excess of uh, stolen moments too, didn't we? Fair enough. You know, you left, and I kept playing stolen moments. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, enough of that. I didn't finish the intro. Damn okay, it, just I'm hold, sorry. keep your stories to yourself till I till we're ready for them. Right. I was talking about your teaching because you have you were teaching at the Mancini Institute and oh. doing that stuff back a few years when you were in LA. You were at post, uh, well, I guess during and post, uh, I guess it was post Turtle Island. You went down back down to LA and were, was a serious session guy down there. Full time. Um, yeah, full time. So uh, you got all that st stuff, but you are uh, an incredible arranger. Have always been back with the Turtle Island days. Some of our best, uh, most popular arrangements are your tunes. Got a band called 
the unbanned. Well, it's sort of sort of defunct right now because uh, I, yeah, it was an L.A. thing that I did with my friend Novi, and that's another yeah. one you should... Because Novi Novog is a historic figure in this business. Uh, she played the viola solo on Blackwater with the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> that's, you know, she's got pedigree that's yeah. an unusual style, to say the least. And her, her other half is one of the great um, stick players of all time, which is Larry Tuttle. And, uh, and Novi and I always, we, in fact, I started doing alternative music when I was a teenager because I, in Pittsburgh, because she, her cousin, who's, uh, whose name was Chunky, that was her name, <laughs> she actually Given became uh, uh, Lauren, what was her, what she call herself, I can't remember what she called herself, the songwriter, and they had a band <laughs> called Rebecca and the Sunnybrook Foreigners. <laughs> nice. This is late '60s, man. You know. Oh wow! And Novi used to come from LA to to do the thing with them, and then she would go back. And so they 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 came and heard me play. Actually, that when I played with the Pittsburgh Symphony in a young people's concert, I, I had a one of concerto. Uh huh. I think I was 16, maybe 15, and uh, and they had hair. (laughs) It was pretty amazing to, and they said, well, she's going, she's going back. You want to play, do this with her? So I would take her place while she was gone. That's when I started playing other kinds of uh, stuff with a band. So interesting. And that's how I learned a little bit about it. But um, when I was in LA, we decided we've got to play something together. So this guy, played, you know, the stick, if people don't know much about it, you've played with... Yeah, the Chapman stick. Yeah, Chapman stick. It's it's a one-man band, and yeah. this man, Larry Tuttle, uh, does it, like, as well as anybody ever Yeah, had. just beautiful. Yeah, let's, and, let, let's listen yeah, to well, it a little show you what it's... I, I, yeah, I was I'll listening to it up. last night. It's up on your, uh, on the dannyseidenberg.com. This first one, John and Ponty, uh, yeah. to your... Uh, That's great, man. That's awesome. That's just three people, you know. And two That's amazing. Or, no less, you know. <laughs> did you did you do uh, most of the arranging on that? Oh yeah, I did it all. Yeah, yeah that's what I thought, man. You know, but it was fun because with the stick you can write almost like you write for piano. Right. You need right. Double double yeah. stack. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's, it's just, just an amazing instrument. You know? What's amazing to me listening to that arrangement. Uh, just reminds me of of the genius and and all of your arrangements. Um, you oh, that's so kind of you. To say. Oh man, it's it's so true. There's something really uh, special. You know, there's something special about Turtle Island arrangements. You know, most of the Turtle Island arrangements are so different from so many other string quartet arrangements of jazz stuff oh, or rock stuff, right? And there, it just there. Um, 
it's not just that we kind of started that stuff, um, but it just goes deeper. I mean, just in this arrangement, you already modulated so many times, took figures from uh, quotes from other this, things. This, yeah, but that this that one's me. more of a takedown because from Ponty, who did that you know, in the original so much. Yeah, but uh, you know, and then it also there's solos and all that stuff. So you know, but. Um, but I I know I know what you're saying. Well, and, there's a classical I, perspective that comes and into I, play. I absorbed a lot of that from because look, you know, in that quartet you didn't open up uh, the repertoire books, you know, like other quartets. And let's so let's do a Beethoven cycle. Okay, then you right. don't have to worry. I mean, we had to generate it. I'm speaking about David Balakrishnan, but he and he is an overwhelmingly brilliant arranger. Yeah. A composer too. Yes. So I, you know, in the, during the process of it, and also having to fight for, for myself as a writer too, I, I learned so much, and because before that I really hadn't done very much of this. And yeah. So well, I really, you know, really absorbed it, and it was in that regard, it's the best thing that I've ever done to take forward with. With yeah. Me, you know. Yeah. Well, there was something, you know, David definitely started the ball rolling with this, you know, with a with a more serious compositional approach because, you know, he was approaching it as a composer, um, mm. even more so than an, as an arranger. I oh, think. yeah, absolutely. But his arranging also yeah. uh, had an imprint of his. Exactly. And because of that, and I think all of the. Yeah. All of the arrangements. And it sort of was was told to me when I joined the group um, and I wanted to start arranging, you know, I was, had been composing since I was a kid and, um, you know, wanted to get involved and all of that. Of course, that became now another voice competing for, you know, you know um, what that's all about. Right. About for, for setless space or for, uh, and, and your vision was so different. It really was hard for them. And I guess a little bit for me, but I understood it better, but um, to, uh, it took them a long time to to yeah. understand what you were doing because it it didn't it was different yeah. and it, it also added a new dimension that was so important that I think we still took forward even when you left you know um, mm -hmm. and I still hear it in the things you do now it's it's just a, it's amazing how how those imprints can last yeah you know, I know it yeah you know, it's yeah still, oh all the stuff that I that I learned. Um, you know, in Turtle Island, my years with Turtle Island, um, you know, that have done the same thing for me. I've just sort of taken my playing and career, you know, as a as a creator to another level. Not oh, you certainly have career wise, <laughs> but um, but what was what I think was distinctive about our arrangements, um, and, and like I, what I was saying, like when I joined the group, I was sort of uh, sort of told that this was the deal. You know, you don't just sort of do a, a, a for the most part, a, a standard just sort of arrangement of a tune, you got to go deep, you know, you got to do something different. You have to take a more compositional approach to it, take it somewhere else, um, different tempo, different style, whatever, or just develop it harmonically in a way that's classical in its sort of um, reach. Uh, and goes really beyond, you know, just as many great jazz arrangements do. Um, you know, there have been great uh, jazz arrangers over the years. You know. I, I look more to the, the big band composers. Nelson Riddle or something. You know, that kind of thing, because they yeah. they dealt with, uh, the point was not just 
playing solos and not just improvising and writing heads and things like that. It was right. You know, it got like uh, my one of my favorite things is Billy Strayhorn's uh, Nutcracker. Yeah, the Gellington or I mean, that's the ultimate crossover brilliance. You know, I mean, anyone yeah. that hasn't heard that should hear right. that. Like the birth of the cool stuff, yeah. Neil Evans yeah, all of my, you know, Miles Davis, of course. You know, no question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All those. Cool and, and then for me, you know, as I, I moved forward a little bit more and started doing other arrangements, um, and I still, you know, I do this all the time for groups, you know, and and put my my imprint on it because I don't yeah. know how else to do it, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and then I started writing larger pieces, like orchestra pieces and things like that, and um, I. I just struggled and sweat over a large uh, three movement orchestra piece that oh, wow. I it's on it's on the website I think um, that really opened my eyes to you know a, a, a fuller kind of compositional po possibility it's just it's just hard for me some people just crank it out yeah and man, I struggle, man, with it. But and I never really studied orchestration, so that's also an issue. Yeah. Um, and I I advise everybody to do that if they have the opportunity. Because yeah. All the things I didn't do at Juilliard that I should have done. <laughs> Me too, man. <laughs> <laughs> that were available, but you know I didn't do them. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Because the playing was the was it, you know. And we have to move. I'd say that you know what you're doing here another good thing to suggest or to look at is that how string players need to maybe move beyond just playing the instrument no matter what style they're playing uh-huh you know broaden that, their horizons kind of what we're talking about here you know you know in the old days you know uh you weren't allowed to pick up the violin unless you had played the piano first because everything in western music evolves from the keyboard you know? yeah there's no composer that didn't use the keyboard to write so um and so when it when someone started playing the violin they already had a kind of sense of harmonic uh this theory is something and, i rail and, about all and, the time as string players especially as violinists i think as violists and cellists especially you have a little more sense of the harmonic well, background the violin is so demanding i mean i know that that's that's an issue but but, but it's so melodic, you know, it's not dealing with bass notes, you know, it's always dealing with the melody uh, yeah. or virtuosic versions of that. I know, when you play a first violin part in a string quartet, you have a very narrow view of yeah. what that piece really is. You know? Exactly. So, exactly. and that's another thing, violinists were always required to play viola, you know, always be for that very reason. But, you know, but, you know like a hundred years ago. But, um, yeah. Well, I'm but curious. for some reason, violists don't feel that they should be playing violin, and I, that drives me just as crazy. Because one thing about the violin that's different from the viola, it's a lot more fun. <laughs> it's all the great concertos. And, yeah, 
Rondo Capriccioso and Mendelssohn yeah. and Brahms and Tchaikovsky studying those things yeah. and Bach. Oh my God, how much more fun that is than, uh, you know, the uh, Von Hall concerto for, for viola, you know, I mean, it's, or Stamets, you know, we have these great composers. <laughs> so, but, I, but I'm well, curious, I'm curious as a violist. Oh, violists are going to hate me. <laughs> you can say that because you're a violist, see? Oh, yes, that's true. Um, but I'm curious, as a violist, having sort of come through that inner voice world, right, uh, how that may have influenced your sense of playing rhythm, like grooving, playing the rhythm parts, the in, you know, that check, 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 the, 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 the rhythm, the parts that a rhythm guitar player would play, if, yeah. you know, because, because a string quartet is so much like a band, as, as we certainly took advantage of with Turtle Island, but, you know, even in Mozart, you know, you've got the check, 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 you know, and, and and the cello is going gunk, 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 and the viola is you know they're playing the rhythm. They're you have to make something out of it. You know, you know that's it, right. It's totally and a rhythm part. Groove. There's groove all over. Music. Oh, it doesn't it matter. It doesn't yeah. have to be current. Right. It, well, that's my. You this know, is I mean, this is what I've been been uh, preaching about is the whole idea that rhythm has always been there, and we've sort of. Somehow in the 20th century, with, with the way we've approached string playing, we've moved f further and further away from the rhythm aspect and more and more into the virtuosic and melodic aspects of it, especially as violin players. Um, and, and this whole, the, the vitality of the rhythm, I think, um, you know, maybe getting lost and maybe because it's so old, we don't really feel it as a dance anymore. It just right. sort of sounds old. Well, in, in the early music world, that's less true. Yes, I'll bet. There's definitely more, more attention paid to what you're talking about. But, and, and even listening to, like, I won't listen to Beethoven symphonies, which I think are my desert, desert island pieces. Next to a couple of things of yours. <laughs> That's pandering. No. <laughs> um, but I won't listen to them in the modern orchestra anymore. Yeah. Because there are these incredible approaches to playing those symphonies in, in the, the scholarship applied to it yeah. in the manner that it would have happened when he was, when yeah. he first wrote it. And the revelation that that can also bring to you when you hear it that way, um, with the, the you know the horns with the crooks and the yeah you know, and the, the the skin drums and yeah the, and the whole pitch, the lower down. pitch down yeah. slightly yeah. And, and and the wooden wood you know wind yeah. instruments and, and just and the style and, and the and the speed and facility of it too because we play way slower. Than slower. I thought it was going to be the opposite. Oh, no, no, they played much. I mean, you look at his metronome markings. There's, there's a lot of arguments huh. about whether that's authentic or not. But it's, uh -huh. I, I really believe it is because, um, you know, it's just, and, and that goes for Bach and everything else back through the Baroque period too. You know, in the the ninth, the nineteenth century slowed it all down. Interesting. I always had and the impression the that, yeah. I Go always ahead. just assumed that as as violin playing progressed and the technical aspects, uh, you know, fiddle players got kind of got better and better. Um, they got louder. 
They got louder, but I th- I assume tempos just got faster, and that you know people are playing like the bo- really true, you know, faster than it should be. You know, with but I'm I'm talking more about ensemble. You know, I, you know, with the with soloists, it's always probably been like that. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I'm sure, Putty didn't play slow. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> when it is not. slow with Beethoven, he really needs it. So we play adagio movements of Beethoven too fast. Yeah. He yeah. really means it when he, um, but uh, I don't know. It's just, but you're absolutely right. You know, being I don't think much about that, but I think it makes me a better violinist. Like when I play first violin in the string quartet, mm-hmm. as I do sometimes now, I'm much more aware of what's going on underneath than most. A lot of yeah. violinists seem to be. Yeah, and uh, and it. it it didn't make it any easier, though, to learn some of the extended techniques that we had to play doing. Uh, I remember sitting with Daryl Anger, patiently instructing me on how to do it right, you know, and, chopping, and he's the one about really, I mean, he took it to that level that we, that, you know, that, that rhythm thing, like nobody else. I mean, I think he's yeah. the real, real source of the best of it, you know. The, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, but you're. You, but then the other thing is sometimes you get stuck in the formula, you know, uh, and you want to break through that a little bit. So in the case of that quartet, it was baseline, chop, rhythm, you know, and then violins doing everything else, you know, and right. the formula of it got a little stale, I think, in my opinion. And we knew it. We knew it then too, and started writing differently. And that, you know, that's that's where you start to investigate the the rhythmic aspect of melody playing, which is mm-hmm. something that interests me much more than just trying to stimulate a, a drum or or play an actual rhythm part. So what do you it's mean? By injecting rhythm into, especially when you're talking about the Latin or swing or, or rock music. Give me an example. Uh, well, I play a lot of uh, bossa nova now with guitar. You know, I just adore it. I know you do too. You yeah, always yeah, yeah. love it. And, you know, there are some techniques that allow you... I, I think some of this generates too, for me, was always the idea of simulating a horn. Right. Trying to... But figuring out technically what you have to do... Because the horn players put a lot of rhythm into into their melody playing. Yes. You know? And that's the problem with string players. I mean, it's you're taught to play at a flat line when it comes to rhythmic impulse, you know. Yes. Um, but, and that's sometimes errant too, because in the Baroque and the classical period, you have strong and weak impulses, two-bar phrases, four-bar phrases. This is... That you want to bring out. But, yeah. but, I, but what I'm talking about, though, is finding yeah. ways to... Uh, um, technical ways to inject that. So for me, a lot of it comes down... Well, it's a lot about the way you hold your bow, but... But um, the hammer-on is a big thing for me. Yeah. Uh, so if you're playing a, a one-note samba. Hammering with your... your I see. This is what makes it much more... Uh, the language more relevant to... Uh, Interesting. It has more and, of a tonguing, and I do a lot of that. I've always it, it sort of evolved naturally 
because yeah, it's it, because it's it's sort of mimicking what a sax player does with their mouth or, or yeah, player, you know, yeah, or you know, guitar players do this all the time, you know. So, and when you do that, there's not a lot of sustained legato in jazz, you know. So you get you it helps you get rid of the affects of the other kind of playing that don't fit the language. And, um, and it's also a kind of an alternative to, to vibrato a little bit too, which we yep. all know can be the enemy of, of the language. What do you think about, I'm just curious, just sort of as a sidebar here, um, what do you think about vibrato on string players in jazz? Because, you know, I remember years ago um, having a conversation with Mark Feldman about it, and, and he was saying, you know, I don't. I have no problem with that. I like a violin to sound like a violin. That's a different way of looking at it. I know that he feels that way. I've talked to him about that too. I don't. I don't like it. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's an alternative way of uh, of approaching it and ornamenting. You know that uh, it just sounds like you're not talk speaking the right language. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It just seems like the wrong dialect. Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, he, the, to me, the the simple fact of the matter is uh, when we're for string players, when we're dealing with most popular styles, jazz or rock, hip hop, we're imitating the dominant. Our job is more or less to, if we want to sound appropriate for the style, for the genre, we have to imitate the dominant instruments, the instruments that play that style. Saxophones, trumpets, electric guitars for rock, and, and um, let's also not forget about singers, you know, because and singers exactly, you know, and, 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 and the and, and the it, voice. It went exactly. reverse the great stories about how Sinatra developed his story, his style, um, by imitating the trombone because he was in Tommy Dorsey's band, yeah. and he played the trombone, and right. he learned about um, anticipating the beat, you know, the swoops. The delayed vibrato that you do with the, everything about the trombone to him was incorporated huh, in his vocal style, and uh, that's kind of the model that I that I use for it too. Going, talking about bossa nova, when you hear someone singing it, if you don't play it like that, exactly. you're in big trouble. You know, exactly. Uh, the singers don't sing it that way. You know, it for classical music. It's a different thing. The operatic vibrato is pretty much what it's very the similar. language. It's you know, the, I work on my vibrato all the time to play. I'm, I'm actually doing a lot of recitals these days, traditional straight ahead kind of recitals. Huh. And I work like, in fact, after Turtle Island, I really had to repair it because I, I <laughs> lost a lot of that. Huh. Interesting. That it, 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 you know, the control over it and the continuity yeah. of it. And, um, it took a while, you know, to not sound and, jazzy. And also, the, yeah. these dance, I'm old now, and I don't play much orchestra anymore, and that's the healthy thing to me. Yeah, I've done so much orchestra playing, and, and that's that's so destructive to all of this stuff we're talking about. Huh. You just can't, you can't, you know, it's exhausting. Yeah, and you know, exhausting to your hands and your brain too. So. Um, how many times I've played great pieces, Brahms second, how many times have I played that on the viola? So now if I play orchestra, I play on the violin, it's like I never did it before. It's so yeah. great and so much more fun again. <laughs> so, yeah. 
But then, no, I have, of course. And but that's something every musician has to deal with, you know, the the ballet pianist who has to play the Nutcracker for rehearsals over and over and over. Yeah, but I think it's just good for musicians to 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 think about the fact that if you're working on a different style, it's not going to be destructive to your. Oh yes, anywhere near the way just being on a hack. You probably get this, and you probably remember when we would play. Or when you've played, um, there's always someone at a, at a teacher's thing or an ASTA thing. You play something and you talk about all this stuff. And there's always someone who says, well, if my students do that, aren't they going to become confused and yeah. start to you know, do weird things in their Mozart and all that stuff? There's always somebody who feels that way. Yeah. And I don't think that physically or mentally we are designed that way. My, mm-hmm. I, it, It's like switching from viola to violin there's a calculation i have to make it's a physical adjustment a mental adjustment and and it's more like flipping a switch i never get confused between the two yeah and i never get confused between playing a bossa nova thing and improvising and playing uh you know my schumann sonata or something like that you know i just don't the switch gets flipped it's a second language, you know. If you're if you if you're second fluent language. in two languages, you don't mix them up. You Most just know one is yeah, one. That's right. You know. That's yeah. right. As long as you're, you've really thoroughly uh, immersed yourself. Right. You know. If you're just playing around with something, which is what we hear a lot of, is the Joe classical approach to playing jazz. Uh, then it's different because you haven't really learned the language yeah but what's probably going to happen is that you are going to take way more classical habits and styles into jazz and sound inappropriate than you will ever have jazz stylizations getting into your classical music because you don't have because most classical players don't have any muscle memory in jazz so it's not going to get over there it's not going to infiltrate the way having a classical accent will stand out when they're playing jazz and that's much harder for them to defeat. Yeah. It's like this, that quote I used on my, uh, that I got from uh, Matt, Matt Glazer on my email. I, I don't know if you've noticed it. It's a quote from Harry Lukowski. Yes, yes. Was, <laughs> listen to, uh, practice Paganini and listen to Charlie Parker. Listen to Charlie Parker, yeah. You know, so, you know because, <laughs> and boy, they're so true. Because when you, and, and it's very specific. It isn't even a general concept. I practice Paganini now. I'm learning the caprices a little bit to the level that I can. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yes, they're getting there. (laughs) But when I do it, after I stop doing it, you have that sensation of you can play anything. Well, uh, usually my sensation is pain. My hand hurts. (laughs) Well, that's part of the teaching process. I'm learning how to do things without that kind of pain. And to create the right angles, you know, so yeah. that students don't. My teaching is very predicated on relaxation and, and pain-free. Good. And so, I mean, sometimes it's a simple matter of just learning how to, you know, get your arm under. Yeah. I mean, the violists have to deal with this. Yeah. You play six-hour Wagner operas. Oh my God. Um, holding this thing and never stopping. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's you can really ruin hurt yourself yeah yeah for sure so i you know and i've done all that so i i learned how to find the what how to structure it so that i didn't suffer 
Yeah. But anyway, I mean, if there's one thing in, in terms of the groove, and I know that's your main theme with this. Yeah. Um, if there's one thing I would love, I would want always to sort of convey to string players is don't ignore the groove when you're not playing a rhythm-based figure, you know. You know, it, but like, well, let me show you what I mean yeah. about this. I mean, can you hear that? Yes. Yeah. Just, it's all, you know, just, you are a master at this. I, I think I picked up a lot from you on this. Oh, uh, man, I'm honored. I'm oh, honored because no. I learned so I, I much re- from you. Listen, I remember being in the car with Daryl Langer, driving back from L.A. on the 5. And we, <laughs> yep. before, before you came in, and, uh, and I had told them about you, and, and we he had your tape, and we put it in. And, uh, cassette tape. We were, I never had heard anyone approach it quite the way you did. Huh. There was a, a, a liquidity to it, a, a smoothness in it. And you also, you, know, you, used the, you used the shake in a, such a, you know, you, know you, 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 you just opened my eyes a lot. Because huh. I'd been hearing all of these, because both he and Dave play with that sort of bluegrassy tone. Right. You know, I was coming much, bad. yeah, I was coming straight out of a rock band. Rock thing, right. And and we just, and I just looked at it, I said, God, we got to get this stuff. It, it's incredible. I mean, the the voice was so different. And, and I, I admired it so much. I think I started unconsciously incorporating elements of what, I know in the unband I did, there, we, we used to play, um, uh, you know, a... <laughs> Was the fourth, and when I would play the melody, I was always thinking of you. You would always pop <laughs> in my mind. Ah, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, um, and it, it's not strictly about rhythm, but in a way, it is. In terms of the vibrato, if you use it the way a singer does or a horn player, yeah, you know, it's a delayed. Right. You know, and slowing it down. And guess what, kids? It helps your vibrato in a general way to learn how to control it that late. Of course it does. And it helps your intonation to not have the great equalizer of vibrato to, uh, you know, widen your pitch right. center. Oh, we, oh, it's, it's yeah, exactly. I to, mean, it's hard to play in tune without vibrato, man. You got to know I'm, where the notes are. <laughs> I make my students play without vibrato all the time. It drives them crazy. Well, I think, I, I think... I should tell them the the origin story of how uh, how we connected, how uh, you were responsible for bringing me into Turtle Island. I don't um, even know what that the origin. Well, I'll tell my version. I, know I just sort of knew about you. I didn't. I don't well, mean, I'll tell you my my version, the version I've been telling for years. Anyway, am I going to hate this? Or? No, I think you're going to like it. Okay. Um, we'll we'll see how accurate I am. And so so here I am. We're closing on a house on Tuesday. This is Thursday. Uh, that in Minnesota? In Minnesota. We were closing in a house in four days. Uh, I interviewed for a job at McAllister College, and they had just called me and said that they were giving me the gig. And so we busted open this bottle of champagne, and we're literally halfway through the bottle of champagne, and like a movie, the phone rings. This is 
remember, this is 1993, okay, pre-any internet. Uh, Phone yeah. rings. I pick up the landline. Hello. Hey, this is Danny Seidenberg. I'm like, Danny Seidenberg. Yeah, do you remember that wedding we did in New Jersey in South Orange in 1986? <laughs> A wedding. And so I said, hey, Danny, I'm not in the New York area anymore. I moved to Minneapolis. I'm not doing weddings um, you know, I assumed you were like the brother of the groom or something like that. And like, no, no, I'm not getting married. I'm not getting married. I'm in Turtle Island String Quartet. You know what that is? And I'm like, Turtle Island String Quartet? Holy jeez. And he goes, I'm a viola player. We did a wedding in I West Orange Country that. Club. And you, I remember you were playing jazz in the cocktail hour and I didn't get your number, but my friend Juliet Hafner know, knew who you were, and she gave me a number, so I'm calling you. We're looking for a violin player. <laughs> wow. And, and I said, Danny, I'm so sorry, man. I just accepted an offer to teach at McAllister College, and we're closing on a house on Tuesday. Man, I wish you'd have called me a couple weeks ago. All right, but it's California, not Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry, Danny. I hang up the phone, and we finished I sound about like it. I'm still really a New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> That's my Danny. That's my Danny Seidenberg. And uh, so we finished the bottle of champagne, and we're we're looking at each other, and she's going, "No, no, we are closing on a house." The woman who were she was nine months pregnant. She was she's going to have a miscarriage if you if we cancel. No, she said no. I, I was like, okay, Cal is California. And it's like, and I was nowhere. I was like trying to get my rock band going. I was like beating my head against the wall, getting nowhere. And this was like a, a real gig. So I said, well, I'm just sort of. just gonna call, just gonna call United Airlines. Just to check. Cause this was before you could look it up on internet. So I call them up and for some crazy planets aligning, they were like, well, let me look. And she's like, oh, that's 600, you know. And she's like, cause I was like, any chance, you know, what was a, a ticket day after tomorrow on Saturday, right? She's like, well, it's going to be, you know, 800. Oh, no, wait. Looks like there's, must be a mistake. No, there's a round trip special for $95. It's mm -hmm. like, I'll take it. <laughs> I bought it on the spot. My wife is like shaking her head. I go out to California and the rest is history. By, I was there Saturday morning. Daryl picked me up, I think, or you guys all picked me up at the airport. We went. Played a little bit, went and had some Chinese food. Mm. And then you guys said, like, you know, you want to be in the band. And that afternoon, about four o'clock, I was calling <laughs> my wife up going, uh, honey. I, I think everybody <laughs> just knew they wanted you before you ever showed up. So <laughs> That's funny. I don't remember uh, what I so, said to well, you. Everyone's life gets disrupted by those things. I mean, it, it ended uh, my first, my, that, my, first marriage and, it, uh, and I had just bought a house in New Jersey. I mean, I was, is that right? I never wanted to, I never envisioned myself ever leaving New York, you know? Huh? So, you know, it's, I mean, it's true. These adventures and, but I think it, uh, it put you on the right course, you know? I mean, it's like, as probably it did for me too, you know, cause it, you know, it sort of opened you up to the, I don't know that you were ever going to, go, you know, to the place you wanted yeah. to go as a grunge band, Minnesota, you know, Nirvana, yeah. like, you know, as good as that is, you well, know, the funny now, thing now is you, 
you you straddle between these two worlds like with like nobody almost ever has with the concertos and oh you know, totally schizophrenic it's kind very of career schizophrenic man. And, and amazing that you can do that you know uh, and, and you've sort of you, that's another thing about you is that I admire that I don't have is this entrepreneurialism <laughs> you're able to just just get things happening you don't you know I, I mean I just you know I just don't I get I don't know. It's like you're not the, the normal type of Jew. <laughs> you don't say, "Oh, I can't do that." I mean, you're you're you're, you're a driver. You know? I'm not fetching, and I know I know it doesn't feel that way to you because it's a <laughs> but look what you've created. I mean, oh, thank you, man. It's, it's probably the most unique. A string player career that anyone's ever seen, in my oh, opinion. That's super, <laughs> who does, super. But who, sweet, does, who can do it? And every time I hear someone fucking around with the all that those electronics and the sorry, I said that word, the beat, um, and the uh, you know the looping and all that. And I said, Have you heard Tracy? <laughs> Cause, yeah. Because nobody, I, I, you know, nobody does what does it the way you do it. Oh, uh, thank or, you, man. Anywhere close. And I haven't heard it. You know, maybe it's out there, but I haven't heard it. Well, it's, I got to say, it's very gratifying because there are so many people doing it now. And, yeah, I know. It you know, I, for, for a minute, I was like, you know, hey, that's my, that's my, I, I started, you know. And then I was like, no, let go of any sense of, of possession of any of, of these techniques yeah, or right. any of this mindset. You know, when I was doing this pre-Turtle Island in the 80s, I thought is this is a no-brainer. Playing a rock and roll on a on an electric violin, that's a no-brainer. That's that's a win. How can that possibly miss, right? Kids, I would play live, kids would like their eyes would bug out. They're like, how are you? You know, I was like, this is gonna win. There's no way this could not work. And 30 years later, it's still a struggle to get people to accept that, you know. But there's a well, lot I, more people doing it now. And we're like uh, right on the brink. I think we're right on the brink of this being just a household, a household word, word kind of thing. The way it was unthinkable when I started doing this. And yeah. and to me, that's that's just amazing. The amount of progress in the string world, it's similar to... You know, there's still a lot of progress to be made in the social justice world, but think of where we've come in the last 30, 40 years. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think the same thing is happening in the string world, and it's a beautiful but, thing. And it kind of mirrors the advancements in electronics, too, that yeah. have... That have and, yep. But I, I think what, what happened with what you were talking about before is that when you get as skillful as you uh, playing rock and roll on the violin or as, and, or as Mark Woods, the classic example of it it's so perfect that everyone thinks it's a guitar yeah <laughs> when you get to the point where you can't distinguish between the guitar and the violin well I mean, what, what 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 does that value does that add yeah to? yeah well i think for one thing it allows and this has sort of been my uh mo with it since again pre-turtle island days is it the whole my whole reason for doing it is simply uh to speak in the language that uh, my friends understand uh, the electric guitar. What was the the lingua franca, you know, right. of my generation? Of 
Right. Just as the saxophone was maybe for, you know, a generation before in jazz. Uh, that's that's the dominant instrument of the rock and roll culture. Um, and I wanted to speak in that language and not sound like I was speaking in Shakespearean English to my high school friends. It's everything we've been talking about. You know, so I didn't care if it, I, I wanted it to sound as much as, I wanted it to sound exactly like an electric guitar because I know that I can do things with a bow that guitar players can't do. I can do that and I can go beyond it. Uh, and, and not just me, any string player can, so... But and also you were a really good singer too. You know, oh, so thank you, man. You you had as a singer that it's like why are all comics Jewish? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's something about your voice that had it's a it's male funny. version of that. <laughs> no, it's not funny at all. It's, I I wish you would do it more. I think you're you under maybe understate some of the your singing. you know I, singing was was. Um, something I came to kind of late. And so it was always a little bit difficult for me. And it yeah. just, it became so much trouble for me to keep my voice in good shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I never slept enough, you know, on the road. And I didn't have one of those voices that, you know, you could just sing no matter what. I, my voice had to be in good shape. If it wasn't in good shape, it would crack. And I was like, you know what? Maybe. <clears throat> more cigarettes then. Yeah, <laughs> I tried. I used to do that back, again, pre-Turtle Line, back in the, my early New York rock days. I remember in my my music studio in the music building on 8th Ave. Do you remember that building? Mm-hmm. It was a 12-story building on 8th Avenue and 38th Street in the Garment District. Nothing but band, rock bands, bands playing 24 hours a day. Is like I, racket. Used yeah. I used to buy filtered, uh, filterless camel cigarettes and go in there and just smoke all day as much and try to get my voice to sound like Ray Charles. And uh, <laughs> didn't do it. It didn't work. <laughs> I tried. Tried. When I, if I sing, it's Jerry Lewis uh, <laughs> and Dean Martin combined, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And uh, so it's 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 another thing that string players maybe need to add as a more general yeah or certainly for teachers you you have to get them singing or or a well, piano or something like you know that. it's it's interesting when I first started singing um, right after I got out of school and I started my own rock bands and I wanted to be the lead singer and I wanted to have this experience of being a front person I wanted to know what it felt like to be in front of a band singing a lyric. And looking in somebody's eye and directly at your audience and saying something to them in this incredibly direct way uh, that I just could not get there playing a Mozart piano sonata, you know, on a stage with a pianist. There just wasn't a way to get that kind of, uh, you know, direct communication where you could just, I don't know, uh, tell somebody... You were actually conscious of feeling this way? Yeah, <laughs> and, and I forced myself, because I was a terrible singer, and I forced myself to, I took singing lessons for years, struggled with it, and, and re- worked on it for years to try to be able to to have that experience and to, to know what it felt like to communicate to somebody through your voice, through your own lyrics, through your heart. And it's an incredible, um, a, a life-changing experience for a string player, you know? It really changes the way, you know, when you think about how much impact every note you play can have, you know? Like if you're a singer and you're about to sing the word love or something like that, that note, it's just not a, it's not just one of the dots on the page. Yeah. That note is the whole song. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's like Miles Davis going just, bah, that first note in blue and green, just that whole note tells you this whole life story. And 
you don't, I don't know that you can get there until you sing it out of your heart somehow. It just makes most string players just, would not even understand what you're talking about. I think you know, <laughs> unfortunately, or I mean, so many of us don't have that desire. I, I never felt that way about that because mm. I don't feel, I, I don't feel like I, I present the right physical. Uh, oh well, me either. That, but you did you especially when you you had the hair, hair. hair and all that. <laughs> you were Steven Tyler. You were you, you had the whole. I thing. was mistaken for D. Snyder of Twisted Sister <laughs> quite frequently. Yeah, and I would get mistaken for um, who's the actor in Dumb and Dumber? <laughs> and Jim Carrey. No, the other one. The <laughs> one. The good one. The, you know. Or, uh, so, oh man! Well. Speaking yeah. of Dumb and Dumber, okay, <laughs> I think we are ready to to get to the main part of this of this show. Oh, you told me this quiz thing, the yeah. the not my gig quiz, which is really uh, the whole reason I've. I don't know anything. Good, okay, about, about this world that we're well that you're in. <laughs> you you may know some. You don't even have to know anything about this because it's not going to matter. Um, but because you are in a band called the unbanned we're gonna find out how much you know about seven up the uncola that's where it came from <laughs> your name for the band well um, two violas and a stick you know, how <laughs> that possibly, you know. <laughs> exactly exactly all right so you ready mm -hmm. and i and i have uh i have some uh visual aids here to, to help with this. All right, here's your first, get two out of three right, and you, you get two out of three right. The original Uncola jingle was written by God. 60s rock one-hit wonders, The Circle. What other famous jingles did they write? And before I give you your options there, we are going to... Uh, just visit this for just a second. Oh, wow. Okay. Here it is. You ready for this? This is The Circle and 7-Up, The Uncola. You didn't think they were influenced enough by the Beach Boys. I was going to say, I mean. So that's the circle. Okay, so it's a multiple choice, multiple choice. Okay, what other famous jingles did the circle write? Was it A, the Alka-Seltzer plop plop fizz fizz jingle? And many, most of our listeners will not remember that. Oh, I remember. Give us, give us a little rendition. 
Uh, plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. <laughs> that was worth the whole interview right there. <laughs> I told you, Jerry Lewis, man. That's going to be, this is going to be a preview. All right. Was it A, the Alka-Seltzer, plop, plop, fizz, B, the Oscar Mayer, I wish I was an Oscar Mayer wiener. Oh, um, uh, the, the, uh, I wish I was an Oscar Mayer wiener. That's almost, almost. I wish I was an Oscar Mayer wiener. <laughs> okay, I got it. <laughs> or was it C, the Lucky Charms, they're magically delicious? That one I don't remember. What's it going to be? Alka-Seltzer, Plop Plop, oh, Fizz Fizz, I, Oscar Mayer, Wish I Was an Oscar Mayer Wiener, or Lucky Charms, they're magically delicious. Given their style, I would have to say Oscar Mayer. But... It's a good guess. Unfortunately, the answer is the Alka-Seltzer, Plop Plop, Fizz Fizz. Well, here's a little background on the circle, just because I know you're interested. They were I, I, an I, American I, rock I, I, band in the mid-60s. They were originally a frat rock band called the Rondells, but were later discovered and managed by none other than Brian Epstein, the Beatles' manager. I see. Who found about, out about them from his business partner, a New York attorney named Nathan Weiss, who happened to hear them in Atlantic City one day. Epstein became the circle's manager named them the circle and uh-huh. their their name is spelled C Y R K L E as you can see there okay. on the uh, thing that spelling was given to them by none other than John Lennon of the Beatles <laughs> and he so, was probably uh, just joking <laughs> he probably like oh, no, yeah, hope no. they don't go with that <laughs> i was just kidding so all uh-huh. right moving okay. on, moving right along moving right along question number 2 7 up was created by Charles Leeper Grigg, who launched his St. Louis-based company, The Howdy Corporation, in 1920. Grigg came up with a formula for a lemon-lime soft drink in 1929, and the product originally named Bib Label Lithiated Lemon-Lime Soda. Lithiated. Lithiated. That was the name of the soda. Bib label. I have no idea what that means. Lithiated lemon lime soda was launched two weeks before the big Wall Street crash of 1929. But it contained lithium citrate, a mood stabilizing drug until 1948. (laughs) Oh my God. So its name was later shortened to 7-Up Lithiated Lemon Soda before further shortening it to just 7-Up in 1936. But what is the origin of the name 7-Up? Is it A, a reference to the pH level of the drink being 7, B, a reference to seven ingredients that make up the drink, or C, a reference to lithium, which has an atomic weight of about 7, or D, came in seven-ounce bottles, while Coca-Cola and most other soft drinks were in only six-ounce bottles. Oh. What do you think? You know, it's, it's, you're really hitting me here because I know a lot about Coca-Cola history, <laughs> you know, and, I, and, and the war with Pepsi and all yes. that. But I never did know. You should get in touch with the history channel and you know, they have this series called the food that built america 
I can do a drunk history version of it. But this is fascinating. (laughs) I think that they used the lithium because Coke, you know, an upper, you know, and then this is the what can we do that's different? Yeah, it was cocaine in the one and lithium in the other. Holy cow. This is great. You were inspired by this. (laughs) Okay, so you got to pick one. I'm going to say one, but uh, because it's so nerdy and other rest the pH of- level but yeah well but wrong, right? the, well the answer is they have no idea they really don't know where the name seven up came from but these are the four leading theories <laughs> oh I see I wonder if it was so uh, you're right any one of them would have been right it could have been a a, a, a slang thing in the 20s you know hey buddy seven up yeah you- right like a jazz thing who knows all right number three. The genesis of the Uncola ad campaign. The Uncola. And uh, I'm going to play you a little very famous ad. These are cola nuts. They grow here. They're used to make cola-flavored soft drinks. These, on the other hand, are uncola nuts. They grow here too. But as you can see, they're a bit different from cola nuts. Rather larger, for one thing. Rather juicier, too, I'd say. Marvelous little things, Uncola nuts. We use them, of course, to make the Uncola 7-Up. It's the Uncola nut that helps give the Uncola its je ne sais quoi. You know, fresh, clean taste, no aftertaste, wet, wild, all that. Marvelous, absolutely marvelous. Just try making something like that out of a cola nut. Why, it's even prettier than a cola. Nuttier than a cola, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, Wow. I know that. I know the actor is... Yes. Well, I'm, I'm glad you do. I'm glad you do. Because the 7-Up Pitchman... Can you, can you think of his name? Jeffrey something? Yes. Jeffrey Holder. Holder, right. Good for you. He has been called the James Earl Jones of Trinidad. Yeah, yeah. His career began as a dancer in the Alvin Ailes. Quite a guy. Just like an a, a incredible, incredibly uh, talented guy. He began as a dancer with Alvin Ailey, which is something. He's wow. also won Tonys for direction and costume design of the, for The Wiz directed The Wiz on Broadway, the first black man to be nominated in either of those categories for a Tony. Holder has played supporting roles in dozens of movies. And what I want to know is which of these movies was he not in? Was he not in The Taking of Pelham 123, The Muppet Movie, or Chinatown? If he was in Chinatown, I think I would have remembered. He was yeah. a star but at that time. I don't remember him in that. So I'd have to say that. Chinatown, you are correct. He was not in any of those movies, however. So no, none of them. <laughs> so, you know, we got to make, make sure that my guests get some right. I, I get your, your angle here. <laughs> but kind of interesting nonetheless. Um, that, that was really, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey Holder, man. I, I love the way you do this with everybody. And it, it's so great to talk to you. And um, Likewise, you know. man. All right, All right, my brother. So great to see you, man.
That was really fun. I yeah. really get this. Keep it up, man. Thank you so much, uh, brother. Love you, man. I really miss you. Miss you too. Great. All right. Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group. See ya. Groove on. <laughs>